Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Before we get into this show with Bastien, I just wanted to thank all of you for listening and for making all of this mayhem possible. We've been at this almost six years now. I think that's right. This crazy experiment. It has been a real joy and a ton of learning for me and I hope for you as well. And uh, yeah, it's just been a lot of fun. And obviously I couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. Thank you for sharing it with your friends and spreading the love and getting more people to listen. I really do truly appreciate it. And uh, we are also always trying to improve. So I thought, you know, Bastien and Ed Ewing sent me uh, this book, The Beginner's Guide to Paragliding, which was just published. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in the show. But it is truly a terrific book. They sent me a couple copies and I thought, well, why don't I just... I read it before talking to Bastien. It's fantastic. And I thought, well, I should give these back to somebody else. So uh, I've put up a little survey on the website and it's cloudbasedmayhem.com forward slash survey. If you go there and fill it in, it'll only take a few minutes and tell us how we can improve. We are, as of this show, 140 shows in and uh, we'll just keep going and going and going. But of course, we always want to get better and uh, and make content that you love and you come back for again and again. So uh, go fill that out and you'll be in to win one of these beautiful books or a bunch of other. I'll throw a whole bunch of cloud-based mayhem swag into the ring as well. So new truckers hats and Patagonia hats and Patagonia t-shirts. Just got another new shipment of those. You can also buy any of that stuff, of course, on the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com. But again, the survey is just at the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com forward slash survey. Uh, fill it in. It's uh, anonymous if you want it to be. And just let us know how we can improve. And we will try to do that very thing. My guest today is Bastien Wenzel. She is the, she's a Netherlands pilot and instructor. Been at this game for a long time. And she produced a book that's really based on helping people get their pilot's license. So this is the beginner end of the spectrum, but just a beautiful book. My friend Jeff Shapiro is actually doing a review on it for Cross Country Magazine right now. We were talking about this a couple days ago, and we both really agreed that it's just filled with fantastic illustrations. Uh, it gives a great history to the sport and great chapters on aerology and meteorology and gear and just how it all works. I was happy to go through it and find that most things were thankfully review for me as I think they should be. I've been at this game an awful long time, but there was also some new stuff in there as well that I either hadn't thought about in a long time or just flat out new. So I certainly wish I had had this, uh, this available to me when I was first learning. And if you don't have it, haven't seen it yet, go to your local shop and pick one up. Uh, it's of course available online. You'll find the links in the show notes for the show where to find it. But uh, the best way to support it is to support our local shops. And I know many of them are struggling this year in this crazy year of Corona. So uh, get down to your local shop and, and pick it up and then share it, read it, enjoy it. So 
Without further delay, uh, please enjoy this conversation with the author of Paragliding, The Beginner's Guide, Bastian Wenzel. Bastien, thanks for joining us on the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I've been really excited to talk to you. I've just this morning uh, finished your fantastic book that you did in conjunction with uh, Cross Country Magazine. I've been involved in a similar similar effort over the last year. I know it's a massive effort. Uh, congratulations. It's a beautiful book. Thanks very much. I'm very proud that it's finally here. I bet, yeah, and I understand this came. It did this. This is kind of a second version, correct? You wrote it first in Dutch. Give it. Give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, sure. I actually, I've I've got uh, three editions in a Dutch version now. This project started um, five years ago, almost, or more than five years ago. In uh, 2014 summer, I had some time on my hands and I found actually, well, I could go back a little bit more. I, I did my um, uh, my license, the, like the advanced license, and I had to do a theory exam for that and I had to study for it. And I found no good information, especially in Dutch whatsoever. It was just all collections. So I thought, well, we could actually use a good book in the Netherlands. There was something here, but not much. Uh, so after the uh, I did my license, I started to think about that a little bit more. And I also started together with my husband, Erwin Vogt, we started to uh, teach theory courses because that wasn't around in the, in the Netherlands uh, either uh, at the time. So we set the course up and then our students were asking us, well, what can we read? I mean, where, where's the information? What's the study material? And it just wasn't there. It was either old or not in Dutch language. So in the summer of 2014, I had some time on my hands. I thought, well, I'll just start writing, see where it ends. So I wrote a first Dutch version, and then I consulted a lot of um, Dutch, uh, you know, pilots, friends, instructors, schools uh, to help me to correct that. And that resulted in the first Dutch version in the beginning of 2015. So I printed like uh, I printed 500 uh, books of that. Uh, thinking that in the Netherlands with about a thousand active pilots, 1500 who are members of the association, I thought it would last me forever. I mean, 500 books is going to sell 500 books. <laughs> it sold out in two years. Really? Wow. It's gone. 500 books in two years. So 250 books in the Netherlands in two years. I was like, what's happening? Here? Wow. And everybody was really supportive and uh, using the book to teach. So everybody was really uh, enthusiastic about it. I got a lot of feedback. Produced a second version, a uh, second edition, updated, uh, and then an English fly flying friend of mine saw it. He said, you have to translate this in English. I was like, yeah, why? I mean, the British have books. It's all there in English. It's just the Dutch that didn't have any. He said, no, no, you have to really translate it. It's so good and you have to do this. Mm. I don't know. And I said, okay, that's fine. I'm going to translate a couple of chapters and you're going to, and you can read it and you can check the English language and you can correct it for me and then we'll see what happens. He said, okay, I'll do that. So that's what happened in about, I think, winter 2016 or something. Uh, I sent him some text in English and he corrected it, translated. He said, it's really good. Even now I'm reading it in English, he says, it's, it's really good. You really send it. It's like, hmm, okay, who am I going to send that to? And then the first 
person I thought of, I'm sure you remember, remember, you'll remember this, is Greg Hammerton. Sure. Because I've had some, some email conversations. Yeah, he's, he's been on the yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> he's quite a famous person as well. Um, he has, uh, he had printed, he had published some books of himself, so I thought maybe he has a, it, this small publishing company of that he can do something for me. So he emailed me back really quickly, he says, well, I'm too small to do this, but the guys you need to send this to is Cross Country Magazine. Like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, those are like the biggest, best in the world. I, I'm going to, no, he says, you, you can send it there and send them to Hugh Miller, who's the publisher. So that's what I did in the end, uh, not expecting much of it. I sent a couple of chapters and this was 2017, beginning of 2017. And Hugh was really enthusiastic from the start he says this is exactly what we've been looking for to write a book for beginners not experienced pilots mm. like the books that I already have uh, but for beginners I mean the, the start of the series we have um, Bruce Goldsmith's book 50 ways to fly better and we've got Kelly Farina's book this is for really advanced pilots but they didn't have anything for beginners so they're really enthusiastic and said oh we can work with this no problem so yeah that's what we did I was amazed really that they liked it and we started working together to improve it they uh, added a lot a lot of information they um, consulted a lot of uh, uh, instructors people around the world from their network to improve it and to add to it to make it bigger and better and we have so much more photography and illustrations yeah, it is filled with illustrations and drawings and graphs. And I just, I think that's terrific because I think it really suits, you know, there's not, you know, a lot of people can't just read and learn. They need to visualize it. They need to see it. You need to go to the hill. I, I kept thinking when I was reading it that it would have been so nice to have when I was learning because it's, it's this kind of handbook you could go home you're getting filled with so much each day when you go to the training hill it's kind of overwhelming and then this would be a nice thing to go home to and curl up you know on your couch and reaffirm some of the things you just learned yeah I'm, I'm really happy you say that because that's exactly how i wanted it to be like the book that i never had that's, that sounds a bit dramatic i don't mean it that way but there wasn't really anything around like this maybe mm. touching cloud base is a good book but it's, it was starting to get maybe a little bit well it need, needs an update maybe mm. it's a good book but um it's good. And, and it was not in my language so that's uh, yeah it's like the book I, I i always wanted to have and need it so glad you say that yeah i mean the 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 chapter for me that really stood out i mean they're all they're all fantastic but the one that really stood out for me is just the weather one because there's so many terms and terminologies and uh, you know adiabatic that i just think it doesn't matter how many times you read it you always need a little refresher unless you're a meteorologist and you're right. In the beginning of the chapter, you say, you know, that you didn't know this when you were getting into paragliding, but you're going to become basically a meteorologist. You, you, we all, we all do. We have to. That's what, that's what we're dealing with every time we go fly. And so it's, you know, it, it was really, it was comprehensive. It was clear. It, it flowed well. I mean, and they all do, but that to me as an, you know, quote unquote advanced pilot, uh, you know, that it was, that was the one I really dug into and, and, and enjoyed. 
Yeah, that's great. Great to hear as well that there's something for an advanced pilot as well in there because it's really a beginner's book. But we hope that it's going to be interesting for people that fly have been flying for a while, like a refresher you're saying, or maybe something new. Mm. So yeah, it's great to hear. And you're I'm not, I, sorry. No, I was just gonna say you're you're also are do, are you the editor or what's your involvement with Lift Magazine? That's the local magazine. Yeah, that's a local magazine. Lift is the association magazine, oh. like the uh, like the Skywings or sure. whatever the other are called. Yep. And I've been doing that as a volunteer since 2011 or something with a, a small group, like six or seven, depends on, that changes a lot. But we're all volunteers and we make the magazine four times a year. Hmm. Uh, and I'm the one that keeps the whole bunch together, basically, and makes sure that everything gets done on time. And tell me again, so, how many registered pilots do you have in the Netherlands? The association has 1,700 members, but okay. all of them are really active pilots, of course. But sure. we, we need to be a member of the association to get our license, and that's how many licenses there are, valid licenses in the Netherlands. And you, you have a great thing at the very end of the book on all the different associations around the world, you know, APPI and USPA and BHPA and every, all of them. How does your system work there? Because I know some, like in Sweden, it's really club-based, correct? I mean, I know that's not in the Netherlands, but it, the, it, how, how does yours work? Right. In Sweden, I don't know. Um, our, uh, our system just has, from the association, there are uh, things you need to know. They have lists of things you need to do. Uh, and the schools are members of the association. They are, um, I don't know how to explain that, but they're like, they, they need to be... Uh, um, um, associated with the association i'm not saying that right um but all these schools um are uh well help me out here with the english <laughs> yes yeah, so, i mean the, you you have it you have it you have a system that the association puts their rubber stamp on that s students have to go through to get uh, their various licenses yeah and all the schools have their uh they are licensed to school paraglider pilots uh, so they have to be in order to give out the licenses. Okay. So you go to a school in the Netherlands, you you sign up with one of the 13 schools that are a member of the association. And all these schools have instructors that are also, uh, they have their instructor's license from the association. Uh, and so they all have their own, uh, or the association has um, a number of things you need to do and know. Uh, there's like a list, but the instructor in the school determines if you're a good pilot. And then the other thing is you need to do an, a theory exam. Um, and that's for everybody in the Netherlands. It's the same. So it's a central exam. You sit down and you do these questions. Uh, there are two or three times a year you can sign up for it for an exam and you have to pass that. Um, and how do how do you how do the pilots in the Netherlands, you know, I know that for the most part, your ridge soar, it's pretty flat. Uh, do you do the school there at, at the dunes and then they take groups into the mountains or how do, how do you get the, the practical? Yeah, that's an issue, isn't it? We, we do a lot of towing, which, oh. uh, winch operation, uh, especially in the east and the south of the Netherlands, there's a lot of towing. Uh, so I would guess about half of the people here do their whole uh, schooling, their whole flight career on, uh, on tow. Uh, and the other ones, most of the schools have uh, courses in the mountains as well. Hmm. So you can sign up for a course. You go to France or to Austria and uh, do your week's uh, training there. So uh, 
Yeah, I think most people or no, a lot of people start learning uh, on tow and then go to the mountains or there's also a lot of people that just go with one of the Dutch schools outside of the Netherlands uh, and go to the mountains and learn there. And, and you said you and your husband both teach. Do you have your own school? Is that your job? No, we don't have our own school. Okay. And also in the Netherlands is so small that there are only out of those 13 schools, there are three schools of which the owners can live of it. But the instructors get, you know, a little bit of cost, but uh, they don't get paid a real salary. So we do it for fun and uh, we teach with a number of schools, the schools where we learn to fly ourselves, which is paragliding school in Inferno. Uh, but we teach, We sometimes we go with another school as well, just it's, it's a small community here, so. Mm. Bastian, can you give me a brief, you know, give me the uh, the, the first page resume of your of your life of flying. How, how did you come to this point where you thought, okay, I need to, I need to write a book. <laughs> I need to write a book. Uh, it started with just a weekend of fun in Germany with the school where we learned, just an introduction weekend. And then we booked uh, many years later, but actually uh, we booked a, a week's mountain course in France. And we actually learned how to fly near the famous site of saint vincent le fort mm. Where there's Great. a lot of competitions yeah. as well. So that, that our first flights were from the the world competition sites of uh, Saint Jean. Mm. That's where we did our first flight. So that week was was really nice, but the weather was bad. So we did only like two flights that for a whole week. Oof. So we booked another week and another week in Turkey and another week in Turkey. So we had our license within a year. Uh, pretty quick. We that uh, that's like the. The, I think you call it P2 license. Yep. You can fly independently, but not overland yet, mm-hmm. cross country. And I think about a year or two years later, we both did our uh, advanced uh, pilot, so some cross country flying a little bit. Uh, and with, at the same time, we started to teach like assistant instructors. I'm still an assi- assistant instructor, by the way. I'm not a full instructor. My husband is. Mm. Uh, so we can basically run a course together. He would be the responsible instructor and I would help. Um, so we started to teach, you know, first just uh, uh, show people how to attach their gliders and lay out the gliders and then help to launch. And then the next step is to help to land them. And like I said, somewhere in that process, we found out that there is not a lot of theory. Like you can read, you can tell people a lot of things, but it's not they we couldn't point it to a book or something. And that's how the idea started. And what, what do you think, you know, in, in obviously using your own system and what you've seen pre-book, what were, what were the big things that people were missing? You know, what were the things where you were constantly going, gosh, I wish we had something for that. Well, I think and, uh, as, uh, in a daily daily life, I'm a science writer. So I like facts <laughs> and I like science so the things that were missing in my view was I heard a lot of instructors explain things not quite right or completely wrong or completely misleading sometimes, but usually it was not quite right. And I was used, in the beginning, I was like, I just don't understand what they're saying. And later I was like, he's not saying that right. It's just wrong. So I wanted to give the students something to read. Like here, this is what it's really like. This is, these are the facts. This is. This is the truth, but it wasn't there. You had to point them to internet, and then uh, the internet's not well. There are a lot of um, fake news on there as well, <laughs> so it was really difficult to to find uh, to to point them to to one book 
that was clear and easy to understand in all these facts um, and, and at the same time correct. So, yeah. In an ideal world, this is just so long ago for me, I, I literally can't remember it. Um, but in an ideal world, you know, somebody listening to the podcast right now who's been thinking about flying or, you know, has maybe gone out and seen people fly and land a little bit, or maybe they've had, you know, they've done a tandem or something. What's the best way to, what, how would you like to see your book used? Oh, you could buy the book and start reading, but I would really recommend it to learn in practice as well. I mean, the book is great and I should, of course, promote it to buy it for everyone. But I think the best way is just go out and do it on your own and have fun. Uh, and if you, if you just want to try out for one day, that's fine. I see a lot of people sign up for a long course or not knowing whether they really are going to like it. And so, and uh, then the schools are requiring them to, to sign up for a week's long course. Uh, just try it out for a day, go on a tandem or go play around. Uh, and if you find it something for you, then do go to a school and start flying. Uh, and then buy a secondhand glider or some old equipment and find a field or a beach or something. And just start playing with the glider. That's the best. The best thing to learn is in practice. And then if it's raining... Or if it's bad weather, if it's cold or something, or you live in the Netherlands and no flying opportunities, then you just buy the book and start reading about it. How do you find a good school? How do you find good people? Oh, that probably depends on the, the place where you are in the world. Um, I think in the Netherlands, there are not really bad schools. There are a couple of really small schools. But in for the, for the Netherlands, it depends on... A, they just have different characters. There are no bad schools, but the one is more outdoor minded and the other one is more towing minded. And the third one is more cross country flying minded. Uh, so, and some are, some of them are really uh, for people that are a bit scared maybe in the beginning. So they go slowly and, and, and safe. And some others are more, uh, uh, just go do it and have fun and uh, don't complain about it. So you have to find it. Uh, a school that suits your character, the way you're learning. So that's, I guess that that might hold for the rest of the world as well. Just go out and see if you like the people that are around. Just talk to them and watch for a while and then decide if it's for you. In, in all your years of assistant instructing, I guess, with your husband and, and you know, writing the book and seeing what you've seen, are there... I mean, it was, it was, it was, the book really kind of took you through the whole progression of learning, which was terrific. You know, it has the, it has the history of paragliding, which is always just a blast. Uh, then there's a chapter on gear and then there's kind of getting started and we, you take us all the way through until, you know, more complicated subjects like airspace and rules of the road and getting your license and all the various licenses around the world. But what, what do you, what do you see as the, the biggest, the most important things that people need to get on the way or things that uh, cause the most problems? Oh, that's a hard one. Again, I think you have to fly a lot. You have to just go out and do it instead of, I mean, studying is very good and it's good as a reference to read a lot about it. And I, for myself, are a lot of, uh, I, I'm really a person that needs to read and needs to know the facts and understand aerodynamics and meteorology. It's not really necessary to fly well, 
I think you have to fly a lot and fly in a lot of different uh, circumstances and a lot of different places. Um, from my own experience, what I liked about the school where I learned how to fly is we would go to a lot of different takeoffs and in a lot of different conditions. In other schools that are more uh, staying in one place, uh, the students will only see like a grassy hill as a takeoff. And then when they start uh, to see a rock, rock face or something that's really steep, uh, they don't know how to deal with that. So I think you have to gather a lot of experience by doing uh, many different things and go to many different places and maybe switch schools a lot or switch instructors a lot so that you see a lot of different things instead of just going down from that one little hill. And most importantly, I think people should have fun. It's not about, well, of course, it can be about um, flying big numbers or big, big things. But I think in the end, it's a hobby. So mm. you should have fun. Good advice. How about you have some other advice? Sounds like you've got a pretty special relationship with your husband. And I know that that doesn't always work out when people are, you know, participating in the same sport, not just paragliding, but anything, any advice for, for couples out there or people that want to become a couple in the, in the sport of <laughs> uh, free flight, because it, you know, there, there's that, there's that problem that always hangs out just beyond our reach, uh, which is the risk side of it, you know, that, that can be kind of tough on couples, I think. Well, we've never had that problem at all. The only problem we have is that we don't have anyone to drive within two to two weeks. I mean, <laughs> and it's usually my husband's problem because he ends up running up back up the hill and getting the car to <laughs> But no, we don't have problems like that. I mean, we have a different view on risks and I take my own decisions and he takes his own decisions. Um, but it's fine. I think we, we know from each other what we like to do, and what we do not like to do. And in, on the whole, it's it's more fun to fly together than alone. Otherwise, I mean, we do all our holidays flying. We oh, spend cool. most of our holidays flying. We haven't done anything else, basically. Almost, wow, so. what, a, what a dream. Holy cow. And do you have yeah. kids? Do you have kids? No, we don't have kids. If you did have kids, would you want them to fly? I have no idea. I never wanted kids, so I, I've never thought about that. <laughs> but it would probably be fine. I think my niece and nephew, I would try to get them to go in a tandem with my husband. Mm. That would be fun. Mm. But other than that, I really haven't thought about that at all. I, I have a three-year-old, and I've been thinking about that a bit lately. I mean, <laughs> part part of me is like, "Oh yeah, that'd be so great." And part of me is like, "Yeah, if she doesn't like it, that'd be fine too." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can. I lots of lots of parents have. I uh, there is a Dutch acro pilot, Luc de Weert, who is really uh, up and coming right now. Mm. It's like he ended a uh, fifth of the world last year. Mm. And I, I know his dad very well. He's my age. And I saw Luke grow, growing up at the beach playing uh, with gliders. And I think his dad is, is really happy with his son flying. It's I think it's fine. So looking at them, it should be fine to have your kids flying. Yeah. And, you know, the, I think a lot of people don't understand that acro is actually really safe. You know, you don't really see that many accidents in, in acro. You know, they get really good at throwing their reserve and amazing at wing control and yeah, I think yeah. I think any kind of acro training is is uh, very important for longevity. 
I fully agree. I, I I like to fly baby acro more than uh, more than cross country flying. So I I do a little bit of that, although it's it's nothing compared to the real guys. But uh, I really have a strong opinion on SIVs. I think everyone that flies in turbulent air should do an SIV. And I know a lot of people that don't. Mm. They just it's just a matter of time that you get a big collapse and don't know what to do. So. Yeah, it's like it's like Russ Hogan says, we're not playing golf. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and if, you, if you're too scared to do an SIV, you should really consider why you would be flying in turbulent air. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's unpack the book a little bit. Like I said before we started recording, we don't want to go, you know, chapter by chapter and through everything. That's, you know, people should get the book and do that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the first three chapters are all, you know, pretty self-explanatory. I really started getting excited about um, your your chapter, understanding the air. What are, what are some of the things that we should take away from that? Because that was that that was really nice to review. I have to say that was fun, and you know, like I said, there's there's a lot of illustrations that really help understand glide and uh, you know just speed bar and what the air is doing and how even lift is created. I, I mean, these are things that I, like I said, I haven't thought of in uh, over a decade. Right. Right. It's, I think, uh, aerodynamics is a subject that most people rather skip because they think it's difficult. And why would you want to know why the glider flies? Because it's going to fly anyway. I mean, you don't need to know that. And I totally disagree, but I'm a scientist. So I really like these these kind of techie fact things that you can actually calculate. So I've always been fascinated by aerodynamics, but um, I re didn't really understand it. So there's a, a, actually, it was a learning process to write that chapter. And just to give an example, one of the things that really cleared stuff up for me is that the ratio between forward speed and descent rate, that's actually glide ratio, right? Mm -hmm. And that's also the ratio between lift and drag. So that that's just that explains everything. So what happens when you're braking, and what happens with a heavier pilot versus a lighter pilot? So understanding that part alone uh, got me a lot further. So I didn't know all that either. So I had to read and to ask people uh, what it was all about. But uh, yeah, it yeah. made it made me think a lot more about okay, how steeply do I want to bank when I turn? How much brake do yeah. I want to use? You know, I mean, yeah. I think the the really, really talented World Cup pilots, uh, you know, unless it's a real heater, you know, you're, you're turning very, very flat and you're letting the glider do almost all of the work. And, you know, so it made me, you, you, you put it in a way where you can really think a lot more about, you know, the, the differences between parasitic drag and lift induced drag and, how they all bring us down to the ground faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> we have to I avoid all these things. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I'm not sure if it makes anyone fly better. I, I, I'd be really happy if it does. But I think in my mind, I, it's, it's fun to understand why that works. And for example, why does weight shifting work? Hmm. If you think about it, I mean, why? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I didn't get it either, but if if you lean one way that w that side should go faster right sure. because it's loaded more yep. so that's not the way it works because if you lean to the right you would turn to the left so that's not the way it works and i didn't know that either so i asked michael nestler at one point 
who works for Swing sometimes. Mm. I don't know if he's, he's well known. Yeah, the he's acrobatic pilot and 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 yeah. uh, co-author of Acrobatics is still the handbook exactly. for acro. Terrific. Exactly, exactly. He's a designer for Swing nowadays. I so mm. I asked him uh, why does weight shifting work, and it actually has to do with the part of the glider, part of the aerofoil where the lift is generated which is on the top of the arc like right in the center mm -hmm. on the front on the top so if you lean to one side the top of that arc moves to the other side right because the glider banks mm -hmm. so if you lean to the right the lift moves to the left of the of the of the glider to the left of the wing and that side because it has more lift will go faster mm -hmm. that's why weight shifting works i didn't know that i was like Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's not intuitive, is it? I mean, there's a lot no, there's a lot in there that's not intuitive. I mean, you know, for example, you know, we we have all always known that that bigger pilots have a better advantage on glide because they're flying a bigger wing. Physics tells us that a bigger wing is going to have a uh, better glide, but you've also got more parasitic drag in that person, you've got all these things that balance out that, you know, yeah. so a bigger pilot will get to, if you just go on glide, you leave ther thermal and you've got a bigger pilot and a smaller pilot and they both go on glide. If they both glide well, you know, obviously we, we can't test for this exactly if it's thermic and, you know, and, and unstable air and wind and everything else. But if you just, if you had it, if you had the exact pilot skills and the exact air, then the heavier person's going to arrive at the where they land faster, but they're both going to land in the same place. Like that, that's, exactly. that was also something that it just kind of, I had to read that twice. Like, wait, what? <laughs> What's going on here? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in a competition, a heavier pilot, all things, all other things being equal, the, in a competition, the heavier pilot will go faster. So he get to go first. Mm. But if you add wind, it all gets different. So if you're in a headwind, uh, the one that goes slower has a disadvantage. So in a headwind, the lighter pilot has even more disadvantage sure. because he's in headwind longer. And the, uh, but in a in a tailwind, the lighter pilot gets more advantage. All th other things being equal, so it's it does tell you a lot of things. Although, like you're saying, in reality, it never happens like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's it's in some ways I hate these sports that have, <laughs> you know, it's not basketball. It's not just shoes and a ball. You've got all these forces that, you know, that make it fascinating and fun. And also in some ways, you know, especially for for lighter people. I mean, this has been the, a big argument for a long time. And Bruce is trying to tackle this with his weightless comps, which I think is terrific yeah. that, you know, yeah. we've got to account for this somehow to make it fair. But, well, OK, just just for the listener describe that what's the tell us the difference between the angle of attack and the angle of incidence right the angle of attack is the most important one the angle of incidence it's even in the name it's difficult because that's an uh, an airplane term but the angle of attack is is important and that's the angle at which the air that's coming from below hits the profile hits the cells and and hits the uh it hits the aerofoil so that determines your lift and the lift and drag ratio, and therefore it determines the glide. And the angle of incidence is just the way that the glider, the whole profile, is sitting in the air. It's it's usually a little bit backwards, counterintuitively. Um, 
so and that doesn't change much. Uh, the angle of incident just changes uh, when you uh, push the speed bar or do something with the trimmers. But the angle of incidence is not the most important mm. one. The one that's important is the is the angle of attack, mm. and you change that by pulling the brakes mostly. And and some something that was kind of floating around in the back of my mind the whole time I was reading that chapter is, and we've touched on this on the podcast several times, and it makes a big place in 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 the book that we're working on right now with, with cross country, which is you know the kind of the other end, it's like the advanced end, but. Um, you know, kind of almost like a public service announcement here is, you know, speed really matters and airflow really matters. And it, it could be, I would imagine, um, you know, maybe some of your local pilots who are just learning on the dunes uh, and are used to all that wind and not traveling very fast, but hearing a lot of wind and then going to the mountains and, you know, that you kind of lose touch with that and you forget how important speed is and motion through the air and relative motion through the air is if you don't have it, you're, you know, like, as you point out in your book, you're an airplane and you fall, (laughs) you got to have a certain amount of speed and a certain amount of airflow. And I, I always think about that with just, you know, if there's suddenly, if you suddenly gone from, you can hear a lot of air and you don't, that's a, that's a big red flag. Yep. Yeah, it is. And, and it's always a confusing concept for people. Uh, the relative airflow and a glider always going down through the air, even if the thermal is going up with you in it. And the, the uh, so the ground and, and the ground speed compared to the ground speed, which can be zero or, uh, or backwards or whatever. But the airflow, the relative airflow always has to have a minimum speed because otherwise your glider stalls. Mm. And that's, that's sometimes that's a difficult concept as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we, we see this a lot, don't we on, you know, with, with pilots who are learning, you know, get too deep in the brakes, taken off, you know, they don't really have that touch yet and they don't have yeah. that sense of, and landing big time land. It's probably yeah. worse there's, than landing. There's another uh, really clear example that I see on the beach here in Holland, uh, the, the high wind soaring on the dunes. Um, when, when you're flying low uh, over those dunes, we're like two, three, four meters high. They're really low dunes. So you're you're going fast and you're going low. So your sense of speed over the ground is really, really high. It's like, oh, wait a minute. 40, 50 k's an hour is really fast if you're going low over the ground. And uh, especially when the wind's a bit cross and you're going downwind, mm. your speed can be over 50, 55 sometimes. And if you're that low... A lot of, lot of people, a lot of new pilots get a bit scared and they go unconsciously, they pull the brakes a little bit. Mm, they want to slow so down. Slow, yeah, just to slow down. In, it's just, instead of crabbing or instead of just pointing more into the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they want to make a turn. They want to turn around because they have to go back. And what they do is pull that one brake, that inside brake, a bit more. And the glider stalls because you already mm. had, it, had a lot of brake on. So you, you spin and you're three meters above the ground, you get a big old crash. And that, that happens quite a lot. Yeah, we have a we have a real famous soaring site in, in Salt Lake uh, called Point of the Mountain where a lot of people like me learned, and that mm-hmm. happens all the time. Yeah. 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 Wow, yeah. yeah. One of the nastiest ac- accidents on the beach, wind soaring, high wind soaring. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing, isn't it? Speed is your friend. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I I really enjoyed that. The the Do you have any more to say about that 
that chapter because uh, you know the next one's weather, which I just loved. Uh, <laughs> but do, do you have any more any kind of heads ups about airfoil and lift and um, what we need to understand about the air? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I'm hoping that a lot of people will actually read it and get something from it instead of thinking, oh, aerodynamics is just difficult stuff that we don't need to know. So it's actually quite a practical uh, chapter that I'm hoping that people read it and understand it maybe for the first time. And um, yeah. That's yeah, there were that. there were certainly things there that I maybe kind of fuzzily understood before, but it really clarified, you know, this is how it works. And I, I would argue, uh, you know, like you said, that you're not really sure if it would change how people fly or make them fly. But I, I would argue that it would. I, I, I know that after reading it, I'll be more sensitive to, uh, certainly more sensitive to brake and, and right. slowing the glider down. You know, I think that, again, I think, you know, climbing is one of these things that takes a lifetime to get really, really good at. But um, I think it, you could kind of propel through a, a couple things and, and not use as much and let the glider do more work. And I've, I've been thinking along those lines for years now, but I think it, it really rammed at home what you're doing when you're slowing down a glider. Cool. Cool. That's, that's great. It's, uh, that's what I wanted. So I'm really happy. Mm. Um, weather, you know, so I, I'm, not a weather expert. I'm kind of a weather geek, I, I guess, because I sail around the world a couple of times. So I, I'm one of these people who, you know, I will always find a skew T challenging. I just, I just can't read and transfer over. Um, but I understand, you know, uh, I understand pressure gradients and fern and, uh, you know, how weather works in cold fronts, warm fronts, but it, it was terrific. You kind of take us through, uh, the beginning to the end in a nice scaled way uh, and and talked about things, like, again, terms like adiabatic and, uh, and that, that I've found really fun um, and, and a great reminder. What do, what do new people need to know about weather? You know, that it really is something that um, – you know, there's, there's the twofold side, there's the theory side, you know, understanding how to, to even just look at something like XC skies or medio parapente reading a discussion yeah. forecast. You know, to me, it's just time there, nothing replaces doing it just over and over and over again. But, um, where should people start with weather and, and what are the most important, you know, if there's five things you really need to know about the weather, what are they? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> the way I wrote this chapter is I didn't know a lot about it at all. So I just started writing with what I with my own thought process. This is basically my own learning process. Like this is the way I understand it. But the thing with weather is that all this theory in here, it, I think it's a bit disappointing in a way. You're sitting on a hill and you're thinking, ah, now I know. I learned this from the book or I wrote it myself or whatever. Now I understand that's happening over there and that's happening over there. And it's not because it's a local system. It's completely different. So I was a bit disappointed after knowing all the, I'm not a weather expert at all. I'm still not. So I thought after writing this, this chapter that I learned a bit, but it's completely different. Every time I go to a local site, it's, it's different. That, for example, there, there's this site, Kussen in Austria, yep. famous site. Yeah, Kussen. I know it well. Um, it's a north launch. 
and across the, the valley is the south launch. The north launch works at like 10 o'clock in the morning or 10.30 sometimes. It's, it's already thermic and it's working and you can go up up high. And the south side, I never see anyone flying there. There's a launch, but I never see anyone flying there. And it's I don't know why that is. It's probably because it has a west and an east face as well on that on that launch uh, hill. And there's the Bavarian winds, which are north. But I thought I understood. I mean, you have to be in a south launch and there it always works, but it doesn't. So I was a bit disappointed about that. I, so I, I think, in, again, you need to go out and practice and talk to the locals. And But the thing this chapter on meteorology does do, I hope at least, is to give you the background information you need to understand what, the, what these other people are telling you and what the books are telling you and the magazines, like the uh, the series of Hanse Reimannek, yeah. uh, the meteorologist who writes in Eximac in the Cross Country magazine. Um, I couldn't follow his his text before, and now I'm, I'm sort of hoping I can follow. But you need some background information <laughs> to understand what he's writing. And that's, that's what I'm hoping this, this chapter can give people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think honestly, we have to find some kind of workable middle ground. So Hans is a great friend of mine. I've spent so much time with him flying and, you know, walking around with him in Nevada. And when I ask him about meteorology, I literally understand about 1%. I mean, that's not an, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, he you know a, a meteorologist learned so much more. But what he what I loved about in his podcast with him and what he will tell you all the time is that we are operating at a level where the models don't do a very good job. That's just the facts. It, there's so many other things that influence our weather on a micro scale that you're not going to pick up. I mean, there's just I, I, there's innumerable examples of this. I mean, in the in the second day of the 2017 X Alps, we we had a really strong North Fern, um, and we were heading south. We were heading down towards uh, Slovenia, down to Triglav, and Kriegel, as he always does, made this incredible move to launch. Kind of got out of the straight line where we were all getting hammered by this this fern wind and and flew down to Triglov and then when he got down there watching his live tracking you know there's there's this big long cliff face and he got down there kind of late you know in the afternoon so it's you know very much in the west facing sun and he and he scrapped and scrapped and scrapped and scrapped on the west face of this where it should be working <laughs> he's he's kind yeah. of in the lee and and it's just lit up by the sun and it doesn't work and so he hops over to the east side and immediately pings out and gets the turn point you know and it just doesn't you know looking at it from the outside, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, it wasn't like he was going to a lee climb. He was already in the lee because the, the wind was from the south. And yeah. but it worked. And how did he know to try that? You know, I would have struggled around on the west side until I bombed out. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it was yeah. desperation, but probably not. Not for Kriegel. He probably, you know, he had some working theory there. But that's, you know, it's not, you're not going to find that in the textbooks and you're not going to find that in any kind of model. You know, it's, it's mountain weather and everything's being affected by a lot of different things and it's, it's tricky to write about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and understand. So what I'm hoping is, is to give some background to at least start to understand all these things. Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's really important to understand 
you know, cold, cold fronts, cold fronts, warm fronts. You've got a great cloud chapter. Uh, just understanding, you know, some some of those things are that I learned at sea. Like you said, you know, if you see alto cumulus in the morning, you're going to have thunderstorms in the afternoon. And that's that's almost a guaranteed. And you know, these are nice things to know. These are important yep. things to know because you're they clear out. It gets real nice and clear usually, <laughs> and then yep. wham. Um, and and I've seen it over and over. I mean, that's almost a hundred percent. And so, um, and there's a lot of things like that that are really useful when it term, when it comes to being safe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Phone is the same thing. If you understand phone, you know why it's dangerous. You're not going to fly when it's, when it's around. Yeah. And this is a weird one. I mean, this is something that really struck me in the, in the last race was, you know, like, like you said there at Kosin, what's going on there, you know, and, you know, how much do the, obviously the locals have figured that out because they've seen it over and over and over again. We have a place here in Sun Valley where we've got this beautiful Southeast facing ridge. It's one of the ridges I train on all the time. It's called Durrance. And the, I learned from my mentors here that for 10 years, they flew over to this thing knowing they would get up and they never got up. And, and they couldn't understand it. And finally, it was because it was really a transvergence. It, was, it wasn't a convergence of the air. It's where, it's where the two valleys split. And so mm-hmm. it was never allowed. The air just splits there. And it's a divergence, not a transvergence, a divergence mm-hmm. of air. And so it just didn't work. But it's not obvious. It's one of these things that just, oh, that's going to work. That's southeast facing. It's this big, long ridge. It's 3,000 feet high. You know, it's a collector. It's going to work. But uh you know, in the in the Alps, in the race, that the it's so complicated. There's so much going on there that, you know, I'm I'm constantly feeling like the the locals really have one up on you because <laughs> they're, yeah, you know, they've learned they do, yeah. they've learned it and they they know they know that stuff like a coast and like that doesn't make any sense, you know, because that that's morning. The Bavarian winds are haven't really started yet. You know, it should be the south stuff should be working. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, what I find interesting is why I was just listening to the podcast you did with Ferdi van Schelven, mm. and he was saying the opposite: don't listen to the locals because <laughs> they will go, they will go to their own house thermal, and it won't be there. And your gut feeling is it won't be there, and you can fly the other way unless you listen to the locals and you're stuck as well. I, I, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking from him. Yeah, I think both are true. I, what we are told, what I was told over and over and over again before my first race in 2015 was don't listen to the locals. And, and most of that, I think, you know, 80% or some, you know, some big percent of that is really that most of the time we're not flying in very recreational conditions. And so right. their referee, their reference points are not going to be accurate. Um, you know, what do we learn from comps? We learn that it's almost never the local hero that wins it. Almost never, right. you know, because they have their, they're set in their ways. They, they have a view of the sky that has worked for them for a long time, but they may be missing out on some things that aren't so obvious and yeah. that suddenly work. And, uh, so yeah, you, you know, Kriegel's famous for not scouting before the races because he doesn't want to have any preconceived, he wants to fly it on the day. And, you know, as we know, the yeah. day is different all the time. Yeah. It changes. Yeah. That would mean you are, you have an advantage on. I know. Outcome. See, I need to pack that into my head. I might, I, there's a lot of resistance in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Alps are, the Alps are, are 
complicated. There's just so many value systems and so many different, there's so much going on there that there are definitely some things, you know, a value win will arrive at this time of the day that is really helpful to know for sure, depending on, yep. depending on where you are and what's going on. But, um, but yeah, back to you, back to the, the book, anything from, from weather, I made a bunch of notes here, you know, like, um, you know, the lapse rates, obviously really important. You talk about, you know, kind of how thermals work. Uh, you know, this was interesting. I didn't know that when a thermal releases, because air doesn't mix well, you know, it releases when it's about two degrees warmer, t tends to, obviously things change, but, uh, then, then the surrounding air and when it releases, because air doesn't mix well, it's not that the, it's getting like shaved off. It's that it's expanding and going into colder air above, obviously. But you know, things like that, um, I found really useful to just think about and kind of imagine. Because when we're thermaling, you know, what we operate in the invisible air, and we have to understand. Or at least it helps me to understand how those things work. Yeah. Yeah, expanding and the, the one I, the thing I learned is why clouds suck. Why why do they pull up air? Because of the condensation of uh, of water vapor of of water that releases energy. I didn't know that mm. before I wrote. It, so I thought it was interesting to know why does a cloud do that. I mean, yeah, and why it doesn't just stop at cloud base. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so what what are some things here like? In in the desert where I live, the one of the biggest things we look at is probably probably after wind is relative humidity. That's a really important one for us because if we've got a lot of water vapor uh, at height, it's going to OD big time. It's going to be super dangerous. Right, right, right. It's just probably I, I'm not a meteorologist at all. I'm I'm not really an expert on this topic, but I would think that if um, if there's a lot of moisture in the air because it's hot in the desert, so the air can contain a lot of moisture, a lot of water vapor, so that contains a lot of energy. So in a in a hot, humid environment, it's uh, it's going to explode with more energy than in a, a drier environment, I suppose. But that's just off the top of my head. Yeah, no, you you started that off right, but then I think it, in a drier, like you said, drier environments hold more water vapor, which is kind of backwards. The, we think of it as like humid is having more, but it's, yeah, it's the other way. Yeah, yeah. so it's it, it can, that's why they explode is it can just, it can hold a lot more water vapor, which is energy. I love this about yeah. water vapor. It, uh, Hansa really focuses on this, you know, without... I think in your book you say that the the general atmosphere has something like five to seven percent water vapor. Is that right? Do I have that right? And yeah, yeah, that's fine. without water vapor, we'd have no weather. That's I just exactly. I love that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That moves the energy and it it's it it makes clouds and uh, yeah. My friend Nate Scales, who lives here, back when I did a podcast with him, he was talking about just all the things we're learning and getting better and getting better at gliding and getting better at covering distances. Um, you know, in general, half the air is going up, half the air is going down. Why can't we just stay in the lifty bits? <laughs> You're going to have to find it. That's the, that's the secret, isn't it? You can. <laughs> so if we could see it all, could we just stay in the lifty bits? Sure, yeah, you can. Like the um, the, the idealized uh, model of the Earth, just a, a billiard ball, ball uh, with the um, with just the air floating around it. On I, I have a, a model somewhere, 
um, it just the air rises at the equator and the air goes down at the poles if you just stay around in the rising air. But it's going to be a bit high, I suppose. Mm. So, yeah, no, it's, it can't stay up all. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> um, I've, I've written down here that this is, this is jumping to a totally different place in the book, but what does it mean to you to be an autonomous pilot? Um, you need to be able to make your own decisions at every spot you, you, you arrive to fly. Uh, and that sounds really obvious, but it's not. I, I know a lot of pilots that can't do that, that are just looking around for for other people to do to make their decisions. So you need to be able to, to make your own safe decisions based on where you are, what you're seeing around you. And um, yeah, judge if it's if it's okay for you and not let that depend on, on other people. Uh, and yeah, it sounds so logical, but there's a lot of pilots that can't do that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that I think that's really important, isn't it? To just and I, I think you learn um, a lot of pilots will, you know, they kind of have their home site and they don't push out much, which is totally fine. Uh, but mm. you know, I think you start learning a lot about being autonomous by doing a little bit of traveling, you know, exploring new launches, exploring new LZs. You know, you kind of force yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, which is of course taking on a little bit more risk too. But you're, I think that's part of the kind of you know sticking in the key and turning the turning the lock of figuring this out. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. Although I think that that's not for everyone. There, no, there's a, no, a lot not. of people that are totally happy and also uh, uh, fine and safe, just flying at their own site or, or with their own group of people that do the, make their decisions for them. As long as they recognize that's the way they are and don't kid themselves by thinking that they're autonomous, that's totally fine. I even know one pilot that doesn't do back uh, reverse launches, hmm. only only forward launches, and doesn't fly when when it's not flyable for that kind of technique. So and that's totally fine if you realize you're like that. Um, I think it's totally fine if you don't want to uh, cross your own limits or boundaries. As long as you recognize that you're one of those people and don't think, well, I'm really good and I can do all that, but I don't feel like it today. I think it's dangerous, I think. Mm, mm. Um, Bastien, we're, we're nearing an hour here, so I, I really appreciate your time. And like I said, I, I, there's there's so much valuable information. It would take us forever to go through every little bits. But um, are there any other parts of the book that you really want to draw attention to? You know, there's a... There's a terrific thing on airspace, which of course is more important for pilots over in Europe than it is for us here. We don't have any; <laughs> we don't have to deal with it too much where I live. Uh, but there's, you know, there's, there's, it really takes you through kind of the A to Z of, of learning how to fly. And again, I just want to thank you for doing it. I know it's a massive project. Uh, thank you for your contribution to the sport, and encourage everybody listening to run out and grab it. Uh, you will learn something for sure. And um, but what what other are there any parts that we, you know, we kind of skipped over that you'd want to draw attention to? Um, well, um, I'm not sure if I said it enough, but I think it's really important message to fly for fun. And I'm, I'm hoping that the book, uh, radiates that as well. I think there's, there's a photo of me in the beginning of me having fun. It's a bit of a silly photo, but that, that radiates what I want to bring across with it. 
So just like Jockey Sanderson said, I didn't make that up myself, but the best pilot's the one that having, that's having the most fun. And the other thing I really like to mention is that it, the book got so good because the team of Cross Country Magazine took it up and made it so much better with their illustrations and their dedicated photography, went out and take, took all these new pictures, uh, corrected the text and went out of their way to improve stuff, write new chapters. So it's really gotten good because, because we all did that together as a team. So that's, uh, I really want to thank them for cooperating with me on this project yeah they're they're an amazing team very very skilled and yeah they've they've put together a really nice what i'm sure will be a a bible of of sorts so um well bastian thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge and this this great piece of work that the community thanks you you're welcome it was my pleasure thank you i remember back in oakland i was lying there in rapture on If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing. A lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show Thank you.